Beloved congregation of the Lord, would you turn with me again to Lord's Day 28. Lord's Day 28 in the back of your Psalters. That's found on page 57. Read question and answer 75. How art thou admonished and assured in the Lord's Supper that thou art a partaker of that one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross and of all his benefits? Thus, that Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of this broken bread and to drink of this cup in remembrance of him, adding these promises first, that his body was offered and broken on the cross for me, and his blood shed for me, as certainly as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup communicated to me. And further, that he feeds and nourishes my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body and shed blood, as assuredly as I receive from the hands of the minister and taste with my mouth the cup, the bread and cup of the Lord, and certain signs of the body and blood of Christ. Now, in our series through the doctrines of the Heidelberg Catechism, we have been dwelling with some detail upon what the Reformed churches confess concerning the sacraments. And in our consideration of the doctrine of baptism, we saw how clearly our confession sets forth the proper role and function and benefit and comfort of that great ordinance of the church. And as we transition to the teaching of the Lord's Supper, we come to a subject which today may seem less controversial in our own context of North America, but was not so in the days of Ursinus, Zacharias Ursinus, the author of our catechism. Indeed, he wrote the catechism at the behest of the Reformed churches to differentiate those who followed the Reformed faith from the Lutheran majority there in what came to be called Germany. And as uh, this particular doctrine was unfolded, it, it actually resulted in much rage and persecution and hatred from those of the Lutheran confession for that, that creed and, and group of churches held to a very errant and false doctrine of the Lord's Supper, one that posited that the, um, the very literal body of blood is, uh, is consumed in the physical bread and wine. And so the burden of our catechism, as it dwells at some length upon the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is to both show the error of this teaching, but to set forth with clarity that the Lord's Supper is a spiritual ordinance. And as we saw in the doctrine of baptism, that that sacrament as well as this have a common purpose 
to grow and to strengthen the faith of believers. Here is how he puts it, uh, Ursinus, in his commentary on his catechism differentiating baptism and the Lord's Supper. Quote, they differ as to the design peculiar to each. Baptism is the sign of the covenant between God and the faithful. The Lord's Supper is the sign of the preservation of the same covenant. Or he puts it another way. Baptism is the sign of our regeneration and connection with the church and covenant of God. The Lord's Supper is the sign of the nourishment and preservation of those who have already entered into the church. And both of these unique emphases, yet the common direction is the same. It directs us outside of ourselves and unto the source of our salvation, Christ himself, from whom all graces flow. He further uh, emphasized in his catechism and his commentary that there is this key difference, and it has to do with how the two sacraments relate to our confession of faith. Maybe you notice that emphasis in Lord's Day 75 as we read it there in the answer that Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of this broken bread and to drink of this cup in remembrance of him. Believers, and there he specifically refers to those who have confessed their belief, those who have confessed their faith. So he explains it uh, in his commentary, referring to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28, where Paul says of the Lord's Supper, let a man examine himself. And he says in that connection, all therefore who belong to the church, infants as well as adults, are to be baptized. Infants and adults are to be baptized. Whilst none but such as are capable of examining themselves and showing the Lord's death are to be admitted to the supper. The Lord's Supper ought not to be administered to any except such as have been baptized, and that not until they have made a profession or confession of their repentance and faith. It's often struck me, as much as I love our, our Heidelberg Catechism, I love our Reformed Confessions, There really is no Lord's Day on the subject of confession of faith. It is indeed addressed um, by way of it being assumed in this section of our Heidelberg Catechism. But as you uh, look at the history of the Reformed churches, this has held a prominent place in our worship and piety, together with all churches that seek to conform their worship and practice according to the Bible. And yet perhaps it is on this matter, because perhaps there is no article in our confession or catechism about it, that sometimes there is a confusion about what is a confession of faith and what is the role and importance it plays 
in our Christian life, particularly as it concerns the Lord's Supper. Well, as we begin to examine this doctrine of the Lord's Supper, we will begin with a message simply upon that, confession of faith, confession of faith. And, well, we will be looking at a number of scripture passages about this great um, act of worship of true Christians. We'll especially consider uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3, where the apostle writes, Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaketh by the Spirit of God, calleth, calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. And as we seek to develop this uh, theme from the scriptures, we will see the importance of confession of faith, who should make a confession of faith, and the relevance of confession of faith to the Lord's Supper. First, the importance of confession of faith. Well, this epistle to the Corinthians, or the first epistle, I should say, to the church at Corinth, which the Apostle Paul wrote, is full of much practical guidance, which lasts throughout the ages of the church. It seems there were so many problems in that church of Corinth that he had occasion to touch upon virtually every principle that we are to attend to if we are to be a healthy church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He corrects them for their lack of church discipline, for their divisions and hostility among themselves, for their various corruptions of the Lord's worship. And here in the 12th chapter, continuing on for a number of chapters, he weaves together a number of themes which he wishes to address And they seem to have their focal point in having a right understanding of the gifts of the Holy Spirit as they concern the good and health of the church of Jesus Christ. And so you read through this chapter and a number of things are addressed, including the extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit, the speaking in tongues, miraculous healings, and so forth, things which concern specifically the age and generation of the apostles, which have since expired with the closing of the canon of Scripture. But it's striking as he seeks to instill in them a right understanding of the gifts of the Spirit that he especially mentions this principle of confession of faith. The right confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is indeed a gift of the Holy Spirit like any other that he mentions. Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaketh by the Spirit of God, calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. And in this place, we see the parallel with other passages of Scripture, which speak uh, in this way of confessing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, naming him as Lord. 
Romans 10, verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that the Lord Jesus, or that Jesus is Lord, some translations say, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Matthew 10, which also we read, makes reference of this from the teaching of Christ himself. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. What cannot be missed throughout all of these references to confession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is that it is certainly a matter of great importance. Great importance. It is something that concerns the very honor of Christ. It is something that concerns the duty of every believer. It is something that concerns not only the well-being of the church, but the very being of the church. The church is, in one important respect, the church of Christ confessing their faith. This is the great matter that is before us. And as we are in the discussion of the sacraments, we see contrary to some traditions, the Roman Catholic tradition and so forth, that the confession of faith is not a sacrament. Not a sacrament. What is it that the sacraments have in common? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. There is a visible sign sealing the promises of God. While they concern our duty and that we are to rightly receive and use them, where Indeed, um, they concern our worship unto God. They are distinct from all other forms of worship in that they are very special. The confession of faith in the Lord Jesus is not something visible, but something that is audible. If you will confess with your mouth, if you will say, Jesus is Lord, if you will confess me before men, It is concerning certainly the mouth, but also all of the life. Maybe you would, at this point, think about the time in which you stood before this very congregation or another like it, and you made confession of faith. There standing before all the congregation, answering the questions of the minister, you owned Christ as your Lord. You took your place and number among the confessing people of God. And in a very unique way, you entered into the privileges of a true gospel church as a full confessing member of that church. Whereas before we trust you had been baptized into it and were under the instruction and care of your parents, then you entered into the full status of a confessing member of the church. 
But it didn't just end there. It wasn't just about a moment as though you checked off the box and gave more thought to it. No, it is something which concerns all of life. All of life. All of life really ought to be considered in the light of this, that you are a confessing Christian. I was reading through John Owen's writings about this matter of a confession of faith and he points out that in throughout all these passages of scripture there is a very sharp division between whom you are positively confessing and all that you are turning your back against all that you are denying in that confession he says in that act of confessing your faith you are denying your ungodly fear. You are denying your ungodly shame. You are denying the very course and pattern of this world in its unbelief and ungodliness. And you are denying all the enemies of Jesus Christ. It's said that uh, in the history of the church and also sometimes in some traditions, that when you make confession of faith, you are asked to deny the devil and all his works. Do you deny the devil and all his works, you may be asked. And you would say, yes, I do. For I confess that I am a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's really evident in our text, isn't it? Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaketh by the Spirit of God, calleth Jesus accursed. And that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Spirit. Those are the two options. You call Jesus accursed, or you call him Lord. No middle ground. Nothing in between. He is either your Lord, he is either your everything, or he is not only nothing, but he is one that you scorn and curse. It was a very powerful thing for the apostle to say in those days, for the Jews cursed Christ as they still do. The Gentiles cursed Christ here as one who was crucified by his own countrymen and by the Roman soldiers. Here is one who was rejected by both God above and man below, raised up upon that cursed tree, the cross. He was counted a curse, and so all despised him and all who followed him. And yet for the Christian, that cross, that emblem and symbol of their salvation became all the more precious. It brought to mind the great sacrifice that had been rendered on their behalf, the great thing which Christ had endured for them, suffering and dying in their place and delivering them up unto the kingdom of light. And so it was that any who would follow Christ and take upon the scorn and curse that the world esteemed him were to be numbered among confessing Christians. He spoke about it not as though it would be easy, Christian. Not as though you would have a cakewalk into heaven, but know that it would entail sacrifice. That as he has endured the cross in your place, so also you must endure the cross of suffering if you would be named among his followers. 
He said in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34, And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the Gospels, the same shall find it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? We hear it in the echoes of what we read in Matthew chapter 10. Whosoever shall deny me before men, him also will I deny before my Father which is in heaven. You cannot imagine that you can be a secret believer. One who would just have a private Religion, one who would just keep your personal relationship with Christ to yourself and then ignore the duties and obligations of truly confessing him before the world, subjecting yourself unto his will, proclaiming his revealed word, naming him and owning him as your Savior and Lord. If you would not do this in this present life, how How can you expect your faith is genuine? How can you expect that you'll be numbered among those who are owned by Christ himself when he returns in great glory? Oh, here's the great importance of it, that in its its place, it is indeed a sure mark of those who are saved and where it is absent and despised, it is a mark of one who is lost. A great and important thing, this confession of faith. Now we turn to a second consideration. Who should make a confession of faith? Who should make a confession of faith? Well, it's been sometimes argued that anyone, anyone can make confession of faith. Provided, perhaps, that they are willing to join themselves to an institution. Provided that they are willing to submit unto a set of rules in that institution, then they can make a confession of faith. Well, this was argued by one group of uh, so-called Christians, and they are called the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church. Here is what one of the most notorious uh, advocates of the Roman Catholic false church said. He said, Robert Bellarmine, the great defender of Roman Catholicism, no internal virtue or grace is required unto the constitution of a church or in its members. End quote. Nothing is required. You can have one who is a child of Satan, another who is a child of God. But it makes no difference. Each has an equal right and an equal share in this. The privileges of a gospel church. But what saith the scriptures, what is before us here in verse 3? Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed. And that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. 
He who indwells true believers and empowers and enlivens all the actings of grace, he is the one. He is the one who makes a true confession of faith. And in this, we ought not to be misunderstood. We can say to anyone, we can say to anyone, that they have a duty. They have a duty to join themselves unto the true church, to worship God, not only through confession of faith, but through all the other means. But never apart from true repentance and the true faith that is bound to them. There is that great tension. Yes, responsibility exists to confess faith, but it cannot be done validly and truly such that you enter into the true church as a confessing member apart from the blessing of the Holy Spirit. Now, in order to rightly make this point, that only those who have a genuine confession of faith in Christ may become confessing members of the church, we ought to prove that. It ought to be exactly clear in our minds so that we do not misunderstand. And I would prove it in two ways. One uh, would be negatively and the other positively. Negatively and positively. Well, what do I mean? Well, negatively we can say that there is clear teaching against the idea that the unconverted and those who live ungodly as a result may indeed make confession of Faith and be counted as those with a true confession of faith. And that is the entire teaching of this epistle to the, to the church at Corinth about the absolute necessity of church discipline. Church discipline. Who is it that is to receive church discipline? Well, it is confessing members of the church. Confessing members of the church. And on what basis are they to be put out of the church? Being denied its privileges and access to the sacraments. Well, uh, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, I should say. Well, it is upon this reason. And that is that they show themselves to be the children of Satan. And not true believers. Consider, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, which I'll read the first five verses of that chapter if you would turn back with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is reported commonly, says the apostle, that there is fornication among you, and that such fornication as is not much is named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife and ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you for I verily as absent in the body but present in spirit have judged already that though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together in my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a very compassionate thing it is to excommunicate one who is in such abominable 
known unrepentant sin. Why is it an act of compassion? Because such a one who is in known unrepentant sin, who will not heed the admonition of the church and turn from such wickedness, is not a true believer. They are still in the midst of death. And so it is a most good thing, a most good thing, that they be put out of the privileges of the church, that they be shown themselves to be a child of the devil and treated as such until they be brought under true conviction of sin and true repentance. At least that is how they are to be regarded. If they show not the fruits of a true confession of faith, they have not the privileges of confessing believers in the church. We could turn a chapter later in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And read in verse 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall enter the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but ye were washed. But ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. These who are living in unrepentant sin have no stake in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, nor in its state of glory or in its expression in the visible church. To live in these ways as an idolater, as a fornicator, as one who is a homosexual, as several of these words refer, as one who is a thief or a covetous person or a drunkard or one who is reviling and hateful towards their neighbor. And all these things, one who is living in such a way, is not washed by the Holy Spirit, is not sanctified by the Holy Spirit, is not justified in the name of Christ Jesus. And so for that reason, they cannot be included in the privileges that belong to confessing Christians. And so it is John Owen writes in this place, as a man living and dying in any known sin that is habitually without repentance cannot be saved, so a man known to live in sin cannot, regu- cannot regularly be received into any church. To compose churches of habitual sinners, and that either as unto sins of commission, that is, active violations of the law of God, or sins of omission, neglecting in the duties that God requires. Either is to erect not temples to Christ, but chapels unto the devil. So it is. Now, the whole logic of the purity of the church, the discipline of the church, is predicated on what? That the privileges of A confessing believer belong only to those who are genuinely saved. Are we saying, therefore, that everyone who will confess their faith is a genuine believer? Not not at all. 
We're saying rather is that those who are not yet true believers, who are not true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, ought not to make confession of faith. Who is it that should make confession of faith? Well, we say not negatively, but positively. Those who are partakers of genuine spiritual grace. Those who are united unto the king and head of the church through a living faith. These, and these alone, have a right and a duty to be received into the church as confessing members. And we are presently working through First Peter and It struck me that there are two passages that really seem to show forth this truth. The church in its essence, in its purpose, in its very being is for those who have a living faith in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5, the apostle writes, He also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Yes, we can say that intermixed within the true church, there are hypocrites, there are unconverted. We spoke about it this morning. But the very being and essence of the church is composed of the true people of God, those who have a living connection unto the Savior. They are the spiritual house of God. They are the building blocks of the great structure which God is erecting. They are knit and joined together through the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. And these are to be included as confessing members. Read out later on in 1 Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, there is a most striking statement about baptism, which I will read, but I want you to focus on um, something that is not directly related to baptism. But 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21 there the, the apostle writes, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, the apostle Peter, as he often does, does a lot of things in one verse, but in particular, briefly, we can say that he is setting forth baptism as the sign and seal of salvation in Christ, and he's connecting with it the true faith of Christians who have the grace that baptism signifies. That is, they have not only the sign, but the thing signified. They are baptized not only with water, but with the Holy Spirit. Here are the true elect of God for which baptism was specifically instituted. And in that connection, he refers to the answer of a good conscience, the answer of a good conscience toward God. There is set forth as a single example of the renewed life, but it comprehends, in a way, the whole. And it speaks of an answer, of an actual confession that proceeds from a good conscience unto God. 
One who has the testimony in his heart and conscience that he is washed, not only with that water upon his body, but he is sprinkled with the very blood of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be a confessing Christian. If you would be asked by a minister or an elder, is, are you ready to make confession of faith? It wouldn't just be, well, yes, I'm at a particular age. Or yes, I've gone through my confession of faith classes. Or yes, it's what expect, it's expected of me if I'm to be married or I'm to have my children baptized. Not those things, but this. Have you found your hope in the blood of Christ alone? Has he given you a good conscience? Have you laid hold not only of the external sign of your baptism, but the very grace signified in your baptism, even Christ and his cleansing work? Here is the true nature of a confession of faith in Christ. And so it is, you think, of that almost um, exemplar of the confession of faith as Jesus summons all his disciples there in Matthew 16, and he says, Whom do men say that I am? And the disciples have various answers. Well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, one of the prophets, and he asks, Whom do you say that I am? And Peter, he's speaking for the group, says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He directs this act of worship and confession unto this, the Christ. He knows this, that he is the Son of God come in our flesh. He knows that he is the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And not only does he have the knowledge in his head, but it proceeds from his heart. Such that Jesus commends him in this way. Blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven. Oh, I would say to you, if Christ has never been revealed unto you, then there is no basis for making a confession of faith. It ought never to be an automatic thing. It ought to never be something that you do just as ritual. It ought not to be a bare confession of the truth about Christ. No, I know that's true, but I am still a stranger to him. It would be far better for those to never make confession of faith until they have become teachable by the Holy Scriptures. And the Holy Spirit revealed Christ as a sufficient Savior unto them. And they were able to say, Lord, give me Christ or I die. I would say this in the second place about who would make confession of faith, uh, which is willing to um, receive all of the obligations that go with him. All of the obligations that go with him. And these two things go together. It would be an awful thing for someone to have made confession of faith and yet not being able to obey the obligations of a confession of faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
For if you would seek to do the obligations of a confessing Christian without the Holy Spirit, it will be vain and pointless. It will be a burden and a drudgery. What are these obligations? Well, in our text, which we began with, there is this. Who can say that Jesus is Lord? Jesus is Lord. What is bound up with that? Well, he is Jehovah. He is God. He is divine. He is the Son of God, begotten before all worlds, not created or made, but begotten, equal to the Father in all things, glorious in his deity and power. But more than that, he is my Lord. I receive him not only as Savior, but as Lord. He is the Master. He is the King. He is the Sovereign. And so there is a universal obedience unto all the commandments of Christ. The business of the church is to make disciples and teach them to do whatsoever Christ commands them. So it is that in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 5, speaking of that uh, a church at Corinth. Um, there the apostle speaks of the institution of a church in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5. And this they did not as we'd hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. There's a surrender unto the Lordship of Christ, unto all of his commandments they would obey him no matter where he may lead, no matter the cost. But notice that as well. Un- gave themselves unto the Lord, but also unto us, to the ministers of the gospel, to the apostles, and to the other preachers of the word. You see, where we make confession of faith, it is not just to a universal church, but to a specific covenanted congregation. And we submit, yes, to Christ, but also to the expression of his lordship, which is embodied in the local congregation. There is a duty and a responsibility to submit to those whom Christ has placed as under shepherds over his precious flock. So he writes in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 12, the apostle, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that is unprofitable for you. It's an awful thing to consider the casual attitude that predominates in our own day in the broader evangelical church. Oh, being a member of a church is seen as a very light thing. It's seen as you can shop around and casually pop around from church unto church, never really committing, never really binding yourself unto a covenant congregation. And oh, it's to be feared that it increasingly occurs also within our own churches as well. A casual and a light attitude, lightly transferring from one church or to another for things that fall short of a biblical and sound reason. Indeed, 
what can we expect but that if we will hold fast unto our obligations unto Christ, it must also come down to something very practical, uniting together as a covenant congregation, submitting not only unto the leadership, but also to the duties one to another, that we would greet each other, that we would encourage one another, that we would love one another as Christ has loved us. It's no wonder that the Apostle writes later on in Hebrews, Hebrews 10, verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Well, there we see that it comes back to these practical decisions. If we will confess Christ, not only must there be a genuine interest in Christ, a genuine receiving of him and a genuine submission unto him, but also an entering into all of the obligations of a confessing member of Christ's church. Submission unto leadership and entering into that work of love and sacrifice for the like members of the body and not one of them is uh, is to be neglected where one part of the body flourishes and is honored so they all will rejoice the apostle says but where one is hurting then all suffer we belong both to one another and to Christ for we are knit together as bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh and a crucial act of that integration one to another is where we confess our faith and unite together in a common covenant to worship and serve the Lord together. I've spoken something of the importance of it and who may make a confession of faith. I wish to speak very briefly because we will enter into this at greater detail, but the relation of confession of faith to the Lord's Supper. What's striking in the passage we've been Focusing on particular in um, chapter 12, there is an initial reference to those who say that Jesus is Lord in verse 3, make confession of faith validly by the grace of the Holy Spirit. And then you go down to verse 12, and there is also a greater emphasis upon the sacraments there. Look at verse 12 and 13. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit." A striking thing, this, a reference both to being baptized with the Holy Spirit and also drinking into the Holy Spirit. A reminder, isn't it, that the sacraments are not just automatic. They are not uh, those that confer blessings on each and every one, but those who rightly use them in the power of the Holy Spirit. Those who have the washing of the Holy Spirit, they are the true body of Christ. But also there's that reference to drinking in the Holy Spirit. 
drinking into one spirit. What a great thing it is to gather around the table of the Lord. Not in a casual way and not in a merely traditional way, but as a church family. To come together with that spiritual ordinance. There is the broken body of Christ and there is the poured out blood in sacramental signs. Set forth as Jesus Christ comes close in that holy ordinance for the strengthening and nourishing of our faith. And the teaching of the Bible here is that just as you, believer, have confessed Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, and yes, you have profited from your baptism through the Holy Spirit, so also you are to receive the Lord's Supper in the Holy Spirit. You are to drink deeply from that blood and sacrifice. You are to receive your nourishment and strength from him alone. And I would point this as well. There is a connection, not only that it is a prerequisite to that Lord's Supper, though it is, and we will see that it is none but confessing believers with a true repentance from sin that may partake of that supper. But I would also leave you with this, that in that partaking of the bread and wine, we also are in a very act of our confession. We confess our faith in the Lord's Supper. I would leave you with this quote from Ursinus. That we may, by the observance of it, make a public confession of our faith, acknowledge our gratitude, and bind ourselves to constant thankfulness and to the celebration of this benefit. Hence it is said, this do in remembrance of me, Luke 22. For as often as ye eat of this bread and drink of this cup, ye do show forth the Lord's death till he come. 1 Corinthians 11. This remembrance, says Ursinus, or commemoration of Christ proceeds and is taken for faith in the heart, after which we make public confession and acknowledgments of our thankfulness. Well, I pray the Lord's blessing as we continue on this series in the Lord's about the Lord's Supper. But in and through it all, let us not neglect this teaching that we are confessing believers and we must confess him in truth. God, give us the grace and strength so to do.